This is episode 542 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In our educational system, the old adage goes something like this, those who do, do, and those who don't, teach. And that truth sometimes stings, but it is still truth. In college, for example, most of the professors who teach business classes, even on a graduate level, have never run a business themselves. They can teach you what others say to do to be successful in the business world, but they have never lived under the pressure of having to make payroll or survive a tax audit. And for some strange reason, we as a society are content with learning from those who can only point the way to the Emerald City, but not lead us to where it is because they've never been there themselves. This is a definition of convoluted logic 101, but I digress. Often we find the same mindset when looking at scriptures. We see theory and commands given, sometimes with a reason, yet it is seldom followed up with practical application. And we are told what to do and why, but the how part of the question is missing. And what we desperately need in our darkening culture is an answer to our many how questions. So join us today as we begin our journey of discovery to uncover the answers to the how questions in Scripture as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Um, I have been uh, preaching for a long time. I've been uh, to church since I was in utero. I've been to many different seminaries and graduate school and stuff of that nature. I spent a lot of time in the educational institutions that we have, but uh, I've discovered in our spiritual life that one of the things that we have adopted from education, we also apply to what happens in church. I myself find myself doing this, that we all talk about theory, but we don't give much practical application. And the more I, and, and if we do give a practical application, it's an example from Scripture. Oh, we need to have faith. Like who? Well, like Daniel. Okay, but how do I do that when I go to work tomorrow? How do I do that when I'm facing a situation that I'm facing right now? Who walks before me? Who shows me how it's done? Rather than just telling me about Bible stories or Bible characters. Not that that's wrong, but it seems like sometimes we use Bible characters to exemplify things we're not experiencing in our own life, rather than being to say, being able to say, hey, let me tell you what happened to me. And I've noticed this, it's, it's this way even in uh, educational systems. Like you go to college, go to graduate school, you want to get a master's degree in business, and you're being taught by people who have never run a business, been taught by people who've never paid a had to pay, make a payroll, talk to people who all they did was got an academic degree in business, which qualified them by that institution to teach you business, yet they've never done anything they're teaching you to do. So it's all theory. You know, we find out that when we go to school, we have three different motifs here. We have to think like what we want to do. And then we have to know it almost becomes a little more focused. And then we have to turn around and do. I've always heard the statement, those who do, do. Those who don't, remember the rest of that? Teach. So when we think about college or even uh, some sort of professional school, we've got an educational, then an academic, and then the application part. If I want to understand something, I want to learn something, I'm going to go to school and I'm thinking about it and maybe this works for me and maybe this doesn't work for me. So I'm thinking about education. And then when I decide this is the focus I want to do, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a plumber, I want to be an electrician, I, I want to do something like that. Then, of course, I focus my education into something what we call academics and I specialize. So now instead of just thinking, now I know. And if we stop right there, our degree is worthless because what we have to do is take what we think and now know and put it into practical application by doing. And you learn by doing. That's why in many industries, you have internships, you have apprenticeships where it's not just enough to pass a test. You have to pass a test 
and then actually practice it and do it and show other people empirically that you know how to accomplish this. I want you to think about the same motif in our spiritual life. Think about it when it comes to um, how we study the Bible or how we exemplify the calling of Christ. You know, when we think about the things of Jesus and the things of Scripture and the commands that are given, we have their theories to us. They're, they're global. There's nothing really specific. They make these grandiose statements. In Justice's online school, he teaches very specific things like how to adjust the aperture on your camera. For those of you who even know what aperture is, I don't. Or then he teaches theory classes like the theory of Christian filmmaking or the theory of the rules of, of one-thirds or these theory things that you understand, but you still don't know how to shoot a movie. You still don't know how to do any editing or directing or how to bring in sound. And so you've got the theory courses, which are good, but in order to be successful, you're going to have to figure out exactly how to do the minute details, the specifics, the academics. So when it comes to our spiritual life and many, a lot of preaching, including mine, we end up talking about the theory. And then when the theory gets somewhat confusing, we codify the theory in a doctrine. Jesus says this, so therefore we're taking everything that Jesus said, and when I'm using the word theory, I'm not using it as if it may or may not be true. It's just not specific on application. So we take the teaching of Jesus, then we codified it in a doctrine. So if we understand the doctrine, then somehow we've got it. We've gone from thinking about it to knowing it, but nobody's taught us how to apply it. Nobody said, well, what does that look like tomorrow? What does that look like when you get home? What does it look like when you're on the internet tonight? What does that look like when you're talking to your friends or neighbors? How do you take this theory, this global thing out here, and even if you codified it into a set of beliefs and doctrines or a creed that we adhere to, how do we then take that out of these walls, out there, and let other people's lives be changed? I want to give you a couple examples. I'm going to give you some examples of passages that tell us what to do, very familiar passages, tell us what to do, but never tell us how to do it. And then a teaching of Jesus from John chapter, from Matthew chapter 5 in a Sermon on the Mount, where he shares theory, some application, gives you a reason, and then more theory and more theory, but very little application. For example, there's very familiar passages here. How do I live the higher Christian life? How do I surrender my life to the Lord? How do I become, as Oswald Chambers said, broken bread and poured out wine? How do I experience all that Christ wants me to? Well, this is the passage, Romans 12, 1, and then 2. And it simply says this, I beseech you, I beg you, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you, oh, this is my part. This is something I should do. This is the sanctification part. Salvation God is taken care of. What I do with my salvation is my responsibility. And so therefore, this is my part that I am to present my body as a living sacrifice. That's theory. That's, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's a command. Okay, I, I got that. And it's going to explain that command a little bit. But what it doesn't tell me is how. How in the world do you present your body as a living sacrifice? Who do I present my body to? When I think of living sacrifice, I think of, you know, an altar and smoke and fire and kind of like an Abraham Isaac kind of deal. And well, that can't be what it's talking about. Well, well, maybe it's, maybe it's more of a spiritual sacrifice, but a sacrifice is when I yield myself, I give myself. And, and that's not a dead sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. And I'm not presenting my soul or my spirit. Here specifically, it says to present my flesh as a living sacrifice. Okay. Can you give me some examples? Tell me, tell me how to do this at work. How do I do this with my relationship with my wife? How do I do this when I'm raising my kids? How do I do this in, in, in the, with my friends or when I'm watching television or something of that nature. No, I'm not going to tell you that. What I am going to tell you is how I'm going to view your sacrifice. I'm going to view it as holy and I'm going to view it as acceptable, which means even if you don't think I want what you want to give, God says I do. And I'm going to tell you that because of my mercy, it's a reasonable service. The next verse says, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that I may be able to prove what is the perfect will of God. 
but it doesn't tell me how not to be conformed. It doesn't tell me how to have my mind renewed. It is theory, which is great, and a reason for theory. That's a command, but no practical application. See the struggle? And we preach this, I preach this, and we think everybody's got it, and they go out and have no idea how it's done. So we all come back and hear more messages about theory, but no practical application. And so therefore we all struggle. I don't know how to put that into practice. Um, there's Jesus isn't with me. Uh, he's not showing me. He's not discipling me. I don't really know any Christians that are living this kind of life, so it's not like I could hook my wagon to theirs. Um, I know that I can pray and the Holy Spirit will show me, but I even have a hard time understanding the difference between my voice and his voice. This is common struggles Christians have. So I'm just going to view it as theory maybe codified it in a doctrine, but when it comes to changing my life, I'm clueless. I don't know how to do that. It, it's a struggle. Here's another one, very familiar. Romans chapter eight, verse one, an incredible chapter in the book of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What I'm gonna read to you here is also found in 2 Corinthians and Galatians. So explain to me those the, the, uh, an attribute of those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, sure. They do not walk according to the flesh. Pretty much know what that means. But they walk according to the Spirit. I'm not even sure what that looks like. I know what it means to walk according to the flesh. That means that I do what I want to do. That means that, that I, whatever I desire, whatever I want, whatever makes me happy, whatever benefits what I think's going on in my life, is what I should do. It leads to selfishness. It leads to narcissism. It leads to self-centeredness and con being conceit. I, I got all that. I've lived like that. I know what that means. But what I want to do is somehow do the theory. I don't want to walk according to the flesh anymore. I want to walk according to the spirit. But I don't know how that's done. I mean, I could teach it and say, well, here's what you do. You walk according to the spirit. Well, how do you walk according to the Spirit? Well, you walk, not according to this flesh, but according to the Spirit. You're not defining the terms. You're not letting me know. You're, you're simply restating the theory. How does that work? So I, I look at this passage. Most Christians do. I go, I, I got that. I got that. I, I know the passage is true. I know that's what I need to do. I know it leads to deeper intimacy with the Lord, but I don't have a clue about how to put that into practice. Sometimes I feel like I walk according to the spirit, and sometimes I feel like I walk according to the flesh. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. The things that I don't want to do, I do. The things I, I want to do, I don't do. Who will rescue me from this body of sin? Do you remember all that? Paul, can you show me? Uh, nope. Um, pastor, can you show me? No, I'm walking like you. Uh, is there somebody on television that can show me? Can I read a book? You know, and... No, just, just pray more, study more, submit more, and it'll be okay. Really, is it okay for you? Are you doing that? If, you, if you're doing that, then you should have the kind of life where I could follow you, but most of us don't because we get so frustrated with the lack of practical application, the lack of how-tos, answering the how questions. How am I supposed to do this? That sometimes we give up and think it's okay to live in lukewarmness. Here's another one. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, one of my favorite verses. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. I got that. That's theory. That's truth. That's doctrine. Love that. Not only that, but it casts down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Got that. Incredible. Yes. Now the practical application part. And bringing, or literally taking, every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Well, God is not doing that to you or for you. That's something you do because of who he is. There's a battle going on 
And our weapons are mighty with God. Our weapons are powerful. They're spiritual. And because the Holy Spirit lives in us, those weapons are capable of tearing down all satanic lies, satanic strongholds, areas in your life that you've given over to the enemy and he's been able to attack you from. And everything that exalts himself above God, you have that power in you. So therefore, theory, you are to take every thought captive or into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Uh, how in the world do you do that? I mean, I'll, I'll try to do that. I'm just going to think good thoughts. Any bad thought that goes, oh, wait, wait, here's that bad thought coming. I'm going to snatch it and bring it to the obedience. Soon you're overwhelmed. Are you not? Thought after thought after thought. After. And then the thoughts start coming. Oh, you missed that one. Oh, this one's coming in. How are you going to do that? You're such a loser. And it just overwhelms. I, I, I don't, I just, I know I should do that. I know it's great if I do that. I'm going to tell my kids to do that, my neighbors to do that. I'm going to preach that, teach that. But the fact is, how to do that, the Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't lay out for us a, a command and ex practical applications for us to somehow fulfill that command. Now, sometimes it does. Most of the times it doesn't. Last one till we look at Matthew chapter 5. This is from Colossians. Therefore, you can read the passages prior to that if you want. The implication is this is something you do. Steve, this is you. I've equipped you. I've empowered you. I've given you everything you need. This is something you need to do with what I've done for you. Therefore, you, Steve, put to death your members. You put to death those things in you which are of the world, which are carnal, which are fleshly, which are spiritual, which are the things that keep me from thriving inside of you. Okay, so, so I'm full of me, full of my impulses, my evil thoughts, full of the old man, the struggle. You have come to live inside of me. I now have light inside darkness, the new man and the old man. There's this battle taking place. And what you have said is you're not going to make me do this. You're not going to tie me up and put me in a corner and take all this away from me because I'm too dumb to do it myself. Instead, you get glory by letting me, empowered by you, put to death these evil thoughts evil tendencies, deeds of the flesh in my members of my body. The same body that I laid down as a living sacrifice that you determined was holy and acceptable. So what are those things I need to put to death? Fornication, physical and mental, uncleanliness and cleanness, passion, evil desire, covetedness, which is idolatry. So I'm supposed to put to death these things in my members, in my flesh. Okay, can you tell me how that's done? Do I fast? Do I pray for 24 hours? Do I recite some mantra? Do I get prayer beads? Do I take communion every day? What do I do to do this? Can you show me how? Are there any steps that I can follow? Or is there someone you can put in my life who's living this over-the-top, incredible Christian life and has got total victory over these things, and they can tell me what they've done. And if you're like me, you get a little frustrated because it uh, doesn't say. doesn't say how that's supposed to happen. Well, does God ever give us application? Yes, he does. Sometimes he gives us theory and he gives us application. Theory is what we're supposed to do and maybe why, application is the how. Now, I've shared with you many, many times that the entire purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was for Jesus to reveal to his followers and us what life in his kingdom is all about. Life in his kingdom is different from the rules in this kingdom. Life in his kingdom is about grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and trust and, and this surrender to him. Life in this kingdom is about you and what you want and what you want to maintain. And so in chapter five of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us some theory. Here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the Old Testament. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Boy, I have a lot of questions. I don't know what that means. Um, I mean, what, like if somebody's trying to rob my house, I just get out of the way and run into the woods and let them take them? I mean, someone wants to kidnap my kid. I say, here's, I've got another one over here. I mean, what does that mean? 
someone wants to hurt me or take advantage of me or my family or I mean, I, I, I can you give me? Is there parameters on this? Is how does this work? I'm not to resist an evil person like a government who demands vaccines or or mandates or lockdowns or or who knows where we go. I mean, I don't understand what that means. Lord, can you give me some examples? Sure, sure. And so he gives you a few examples. If you don't want to resist an evil person, here's what that looks like. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Oh, well, that, okay. Uh, got, got anything else? Sure. If someone wants to sue you and take part of your stuff, give them all your stuff. What do you care? Because by the time you get to Matthew chapter six, a chapter later, I'm telling you, I'll meet all your needs if you seek my kingdom first. Oh, so you're telling me now not to resist an evil person, and then you're telling me how actually to do that. I don't like the application. That really flies in the face of my flesh. I know, but your flesh is already supposed to have been sacrificed as a living sacrifice for me. How do we do that? Have you got any more applications? Sure. How about this one? And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. You have to understand that in context. During the time of Christ, the Jews, of course, were under the oppression of Rome. And so a Roman could basically conscript a Jew anytime they wanted and take all their armor and the shield and everything and place it on a Jew like a pack mule. And the law was that Jew had to take it one mile. And I can imagine that the Romans were used to the fact as soon as, soon as that last foot was uh, taken and that obligation was over that the Jew felt was unjust, they slung that stuff off and it hit the ground, we're done, and he walked back home. But Jesus said, when you're compelled to go one mile, shock the Roman, shock your enemy who's taking something from you, and go two. Give to him who asks you. From him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Okay, now this one's easier. It's not easier to live, but it's easier to understand the theory because we're included in the theory some examples of application. True? The how questions, at least for them in their culture, were being answered. And I'm sure they found them reprehensible. So Jesus continues in the Sermon on the Mount, and he gives us theory and application. This is something physical. And now he talks about something more internal. And here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yeah, the guy that just made me carry it one mile. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Oh, Lord, I, I, need, um, I need some application on that. I need you to tell me how to do that. What does the prayer sound like? What are the con? context of the prayer. How often do I have to pray? Is it just praying or do I have to live out that prayer? Lord, can you give me some application on this? And if you'll read, the answer is no. That's it. Theory. Bam. Command. That's what we're supposed to do. So how am I supposed to love my neighbor? How am I supposed to do that? I don't understand. Well, obviously the Lord realizes that we don't have to understand because he's going to give us a reason for that command, the reason for the theory, not how to do it, but here's why. And he continues, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Oh, oh, so the motivation for me loving my enemies, forgiving my enemies, doing good to those who spitefully persecute me is because I want to be like my father. I want to be like his son. I want to emulate the love of Christ in me which presupposes a desire to be like that anyway, because he says, for he, the father, makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Okay, you go down to the end of chapter five and you've got Jesus making one more statement. Theory, really hard. Here's what he says. Therefore, you shall be perfect, complete, whole, just as your heaven father in heaven is perfect. Um, okay, 
So you've given me an ideal. You've given me a command to reach that ideal, but you have not shown me how to achieve it. You're not holding my hand. You're not laying out in front of me an example to follow. What you're doing is you're requiring me to lean and learn from the spirit who lives in us, the master teacher, who Jesus said would take everything Jesus ever said and reveal it to us. And you're making me not do this by copying someone else or following a to-do list or a bullet point list. But instead, what you're doing is you're making me lean on him and asking him to do it through me, which is the ultimate goal here, to have him live his life through me. Sometimes you lay out for us the application, and sometimes you're kind of left on our own to figure it out by ourselves, but we're not left on our own, and we don't have to figure it out by ourselves because the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us. Jesus gives us a command like this, you shall be perfect. Do do you believe I want you to be perfect? Do you believe that's my command for you? And do you believe that, that I've empowered you and equipped you to be perfect like your father in heaven was perfect? And our response is yes, but how? Yes, but I, I don't know what to do. And so therefore, since I don't spend a lot of time in prayer, since I don't comb over the Bible to try to find principles because I'm too busy doing other stuff, since I'm not really interested that much in having the Holy Spirit well up in me and me being a 10 or 12 or whatever it is spiritually, since that's not my primary motivation, I'm just going to be satisfied with memorizing the theory, believing the doctrine, and letting the practical application kind of slide. I sat down, I was telling Karen, I sat down and I started uh, writing out how questions. Some of these we already preached on. And I was thinking about all the how questions we have. And I came up with over 50, 50 how questions I have. How to do this, how to do that, how to follow this command. What does it look like in real life? How does it, how, how does it play out that way? And I started just writing them down on, a, on an email and to myself, and it was, I came up with over 50. I just looked at the top seven or eight, and I cut and paste those, and I just put them here to give you an idea of some of the how things that we need to know about Scripture, how to hear from God. You cannot rely on the Holy Spirit to direct you if you don't even know how the Holy Spirit directs. You cannot say, well, God will tell me if you've never heard his voice, if you don't know how to you know, have him hear you through his word, how to, how to study his word and study his word in such a way that God will speak to me through his word. We've talked about that. I'm going to review a little bit of that today. But unless it becomes second nature to you, you're never, ever going to have the how questions answered. I know that God will show me in his word, and I know the Holy Spirit will take his word and show me everything I need to, to see, but because I don't really rely on the Holy Spirit that much, I, I've never really heard his voice. I don't understand what his feet, his, his impressions, or his, how he communicates to me. When it comes to God's word, I give it, what, 10 minutes a day? So no wonder we're kind of flying blind in this world out here that wants to destroy us. How do I understand the Holy Spirit? If I'm understanding the Holy Spirit, how do I even understand salvation? I mean, how does the Holy Spirit play into my salvation? What in the world's going on here? How do I surrender my life to the Lord? How do I experience victory over sin and temptation? And how do I walk in the Spirit like the Scripture says? And I came out with 53 of these things. And um, I haven't even ended yet. How questions that we need to, if I understood how, I could do it. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Josiah wanting to play basketball. Hey, you know, I want to be a basketball player. Okay, well, here's what I need you to do, man. I need you to hit some three pointers. Where, um, where's the three point line? It's that big loop right around here. Stand by there and shoot the ball. Uh, well, how, how do I shoot? How do I dribble? How do I guard someone? How is somebody's guarding me? How do I get open? How, how do I? So you got to show me the fundamentals before I can take the fundamentals and soar with a sport like basketball. It works exactly the same way spiritually. And when we are satisfied with just theory and doctrine, which we really believe but don't adhere to, then our life is really not that much better than a moral, semi-righteous hypocrite because we're failing to, to know how to do the things he's commanded us to do. So, 
I'm asking the Lord, I need you to show me um, how to take a simple verse, one that we've looked at before, someone that's very familiar to everybody, a simple question, and see if we can figure out a way to learn how to take our Bible study skills and the Holy Spirit that lives in us and have him speak to us in such a way that he will give us practical applications of how we can do exactly what it says. And so the question that I asked was, how to find God's direction in your life. The key to happiness is to be in the center of God's will. And I can't be in the center of God's will unless I know what his will is. And once I know what his will is, then I can, I can work my way to the center of that so that it's not my will that's manifested, but his will. Violet told me Tuesday that she was doing a devotional, the old Experiencing God, uh, they must be 30 years old now, 35 years old, by uh, Henry Blackaby. Is that the one you're doing? The key to Henry Blackaby's life-changing study was the fact that the principle is you figure out where God is moving, where his will is, and you align your life with him. What we try to do is go, God, this is where I'm moving, and I want you to be in the center of my will. And if by some chance God's saying, I don't want anything to do with that, I want you to come over here with me, our answer usually is no too busy doing my, my own thing. How to find God's direction in your life. If you asked anybody, what's the classic verse on being directed by God or God leading us in the right paths or directing our paths, they would always send you first and foremost to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's a simple four-phrased verse, uh, two verses. And it it begins with a statement and a second statement, and then uh, um, a second half to a statement, and then the very end is a promise. Trust in the Lord. Got that. Okay, that's a churchy answer, kind of a theory answer, with all your heart. Oh, that's a, that's a qualifier. That one's, uh, that one's kind of scary. That thins the crowd on that one. Lean not on your own understanding, which is a practical application to the first statement. In all your ways, acknowledge him, which is a second practical application to the theory. And then the promise, he shall direct your paths. I trust in the Lord with all my heart. Lean not on my own understanding. In all my ways, acknowledge him. Amazing word acknowledge there. And he, the promise is, he will direct my paths. He will not let me make a mistake of going my own way versus his way. I will be right in the center of his will. Where he wants me to be, I will be. What he wants me to do, I will do. I will go to bed at night satisfied that I have heard his voice, followed his will, and I'm hearing this well done, good and faithful servant because wherever the center of his will is, that's exactly where I am. That is the goal of the Christian life for us to be like that. So, what do I do? Well, first thing you're going to do is just apply the basic principles of Bible study that we spent all this time learning. So you can do it yourself. I don't have to do it for you. Some book doesn't have to do it for you. You can do it yourself. So let me go ahead and give you the spiritual side of Bible study. I want you to remember this. And then I'm going to give you the technical side and then we're going to look at just a few words here, and that's all we're going to be able to do today. And the rest of this I will send to you on by Wednesday. When it comes to Bible study, this particular passage, first thing I'm going to do is pray. And that's not like, Lord, just open up my heart and my mind so I can understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. No, there's a reason why I'm studying this. I'm studying it because I want to be changed by you. I'm studying it because I, I want to, to know exactly what it says. I want to understand your, your general revelation and your specific revelation. I want you to reveal yourself to me through this word. If you think about it, everything we do from a Christian perspective, Bible study, prayer, singing praise and worship songs, reading a Christian novel, uh, going to church, going to watch a Christian movie, listening to 106.9 or something of that nature, everything we do, the overall goal of that is for us to know him better, better. I'm not studying the Bible just so I can learn about Nebuchadnezzar, so I can have some sort of cognitive knowledge about him and be able to win if they ask me that question on Jeopardy. 
I'm reading about Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm reading about Daniel, and I'm reading about Moses, and I'm reading in the Proverbs so I can get to know God more. I just want to know him more, because the more I know him, the the closer I get to him, the more I love him, and the more I love him, the more I want to know him. And if we continue on with that, it's like Robertson McQuilkin said a couple weeks ago, it's the spiral upward to be more like Christ. That's all the reason why we're doing this. If you think you're studying the Bible to get a degree or studying the Bible to be able to teach a class, the ultimate goal of that is for you to know him more. And as you know him more, he'll communicate more of you to that class or as you're getting a degree or or whatever it is. So Lord, I, I need you before I even begin to reveal yourself generally to me through this passage. And Lord, I... I need my faith to grow. It talks about trust. It talks about acknowledgement. It talks about leaning not on my own understanding, which is the opposite of faith. I I understand, I see, I touch, I feel, I know. I, I can do that. But you want me to trust you, which I don't know that well, unfortunately. And, and, and I, I need my faith to grow. And then I find in here all, all your heart, all your ways. That means everything. Without exception, everything in my life somehow has to come up under the umbrella of knowing God. And then I pray, Lord, specifically, I'm praying you to show me not what I need to do tomorrow. I need you to show me you. I need you to reveal you to me, your personality, your characteristics, your grace and mercy and forgiveness, your faithfulness, your attributes, your characteristics, the gifts of the Spirit that now live in me, manifest in you. I need you to show me that in what I'm about to study. Whether I'm studying a chapter or a verse or a story or one word or one phrase, like trust in the Lord or all your heart or all your ways or just the word acknowledge. Lord, can you reveal everything I need to know about you through this passage? If you'll spend your time in prayer doing that first, you will find that's exactly what God will do. Exactly what God will do. He'll reveal his character to you as you're reading. But Lord, it's more than just mental knowledge. I just don't want to know it in my head. I need you to change me. The more I know about you, The more I want to be like you, the more I surrender my life to you, the more I let you manifest your life in me. So Lord, would you, through this passage, allow me to be conformed to the image of your son, not just be intellectually amused. Well, I I read something. It's kind of cool. Let me explain it to you. It's kind of cool, like a lyric of a song that I never saw before, how it references this person. Oh, that's kind of cool. No, that's not what it's about. It's about being conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, I'm, I want you to change my life with this. I want to I have a mountaintop incredible experience. I want to I grow in my spiritual life. I want to be changed because all experiences with you are life-changing, and I need my life changed by just these verses or phrases I'm going to look at today as I'm just trying to answer the question, How do I determine God's will for my life? If you have that attitude for Bible study, everything changes. And then what you're going to do is just apply the basic principles of Bible study that helps you understand exactly what it says. Because until you understand what the word says, you'll never know what it means. Because language is tricky. The English language is super tricky because it changes definitions all the time. The, and a classic example I always give is, is the word gay. You know, gay meant something different in the 40s than it means now. Um, and so since the English language changes and our Bibles are in English, you need to make sure that you understand exactly the depth and the nuances of the words that are being communicated. So that's exactly what we'll do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. When I look at this, the first thing I see are some if-then postulates. If-then passages are the most incredible passages you find in Scripture, because there's a profound promise, and then there's a condition that has to be met. 
if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and if you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, then, remember the rest of it, you shall be saved. There's an if, then. You don't meet the if conditions. God's not required to meet the then conditions. So this is something I have to do and something he promises to do. So what do I have to do? If I trust in the Lord with all my heart, whatever that means. If I lean not on my own understanding, whatever that means. If in all my ways I acknowledge him, then what he will do is he will answer my prayer. He will direct my paths. He will tell me exactly what I need to do with my life. He will make it wonderful. If I do my part, then he does his part. Okay. I got that. I'm looking at that just before I've even defined any terms. I'm getting a general idea of what that means. And then I notice on the if then passages, there's some do's and don'ts. I have a do and a don't and a do and then a promise. Some things I'm supposed to do and some things I'm not supposed to do. Sin of omission and the sin of commission here if I don't do them. If I trust in the Lord with all my heart. That's something I have to do. And what I don't want to do is what I've been doing is leaning on my own understanding, calling my own shots, thinking I know what's best. So I've got a do and a don't, and then another do, in all my ways acknowledge him. Then the goal, the promise, the blessing is the fact that he shall direct my paths. Okay. Okay. I'm to trust in the Lord with all my heart, lean down on my own understanding, and all my ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct my paths. Take the first phrase there, the most difficult part. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. I, like what? Like, like I did for salvation? Like in the big things? Or like in the little things? Like in all things? And I notice this trust word has a qualifier. So it's not just your trust. It's not just everyday trust. You don't, you don't determine the standard or level of trust. The Lord says that you have to trust with this word, all your heart. I trust in the Lord, not haphazardly, not lazily, not non-committed, but I trust in the Lord with all my heart. I don't, uh, I don't even know what that means. I mean, how do you trust in the Lord with all your heart? How do you do anything with all your heart? Olympic athletes like train with all their heart and professional people do that. And uh, concert pianists who spend 12 hours a day practicing. Okay, but I, I, I've never done that to anything. About it, I don't even know what that means. How in the world do I trust with all my heart? You look at it again. Find out that the word trust actually tells us what it looks like in the flesh. This is like a, um, an application, an example of what trust looks like. And the hardest thing about trust is not doing what you want to do. It's not doing what you think is right. It is yielding to a power greater than you, maybe a power that you're not used to hearing from, maybe a power that you have a, an arm's length relationship with, maybe God who isn't close to you like a brother, but God, because of apathy or unconfessed sin or whatever, that you kind of have an estranged relationship with. That needs to be resolved first. So this brief explanation is that trust means that I'm not going to do what I normally do. I'm not going to default to me. Well, I've got to take care of me. I have to do this. I have to do that. If I don't do this, something bad's going to happen. I'll need to hire this attorney or that accountant. I need to go make more money. I need to go take care of this. I need a bigger house, a bigger, and it just, it just goes on and on and on. Because this is the way I understand it with my fallen mind in this fallen world. I think this is how success is measured. And the scripture says, if you trust in him with all your heart, what you cannot do is lean, rest, take comfort in, and support from your own understanding about anything. Anything. No, 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 no. My business and my family and my personal life, those are mine. I ask God to take care of the spiritual stuff. And if that's your attitude, you will always remain a zygote spiritually. It doesn't work that way. Trust in the Lord with not just the part of the heart you've given to him, but all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. 
in all your ways, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Note the qualifier here. And by the way, in the Hebrew, it's the same word as pas in the Greek. If you looked at this passage in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, you would find it's the same word that we see all in the Greek, which is an all-inclusive in totality word. It's pretty amazing. There's no exception. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Well, I don't know what my ways mean. What, I mean, what does way mean? Does that mean like what I do when I'm at work or what I do when I'm awake or what I do 24 hours a day? Is it the way I walk or think? Is it just my relationship with my boyfriend or girlfriend or my relationship with my family or, or what? I mean, what does that mean? Is it just what I do in church or the rest of my life? I mean, I mean what are we talking about here? Are we going to let God invade every single pore of your being? Is that what he wants? I'm not willing to do that. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That's an incredible word. I can't wait to share it with you because you're, it doesn't mean what we think it means, like acknowledge, like, a, hey, Colin, how you doing, man? Acknowledge Colin. Colin looks at me and goes, sup? And all of a sudden, we've acknowledged each other. It's not what the word means at all. It means something totally different. It's from the word gnosko. That's the no part in knowledge if this was Greek. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct my paths. I don't even know what that means. How does he direct my paths? How does he tell me what to do? I mean, how, how does that work? So I'm not even going to begin to look at the words in this message, the trust. We're going to have to do that on Wednesday. But I do want to just close by throwing some questions out that maybe you probably have, like I had, as I began looking at this process of trying to determine how to hear God answer the how questions in my life with a very familiar passage. Some of the questions I had is this. I, I don't understand what pure trust looks like. Look, I've trusted people before. I trusted my dad. I was a little kid. I trusted my dad and I believed everything my dad told me. And you know what? My dad lied to me. My dad betrayed me. My dad was a narcissist. And the greatest hurts I've ever had in my life, I had from my own father telling me things that weren't true and me believing him because he was my dad. Of course he loved me. And, and so, you know, that's my earthly father that betrayed me something horrible. You may have experienced the same thing or maybe with a spouse or a loved one. But the fact is now I'm supposed to trust my heavenly father. I don't even like that word father. I mean, can we call him like king? Because I guess I can trust a king better than can I father because what I'm struggling with trusting my father is because of my father. So how am I supposed to trust pure, without reservation, with all my heart, with no plan B in my life when I've been betrayed by someone I trusted more than anything. I mean, can I really do that? And can I really trust God at his word? Because there have been times that I've prayed that he would do something and some preacher told me to quote some passages. And so therefore God was bound to give me what I want and he didn't. And I don't want to think the problem was in me. Maybe, maybe so I don't know. Can I really trust God in his word? Is all of it true? I mean, is it just good for theory and for doctrine? But when it comes to actually living my life out, if let's say you're running a business in this rough world out there, I mean, can principles from God really work? Could you really have a fast food restaurant and close on Sunday and even be able to stay open? Yeah, not only that, but you're the number one restaurant in America six years in a row. Shocking, is it not? Makes you wonder why all Christian restaurants don't do that, but they don't. I haven't heard from God. Don't even know what God's voice sounds like. I hear the preacher talking about it, and my mom used to talk about how God spoke to her, but I mean, I'm too busy doing the stuff I want to do. I don't have time for any of that kind of stuff. So if I'm supposed to trust God with all my heart, and then he's supposed to tell me something, I mean, can I trust him to reveal it to me? And can I trust him to reveal it to me in a way that I can understand that, it, that it's really him and not just me? And whenever he speaks, can I know for certain, can I trust him to tell me that's really God speaking and I can hold on to his word as if nothing else matters? I mean, you're talking about trusting the Lord. The I am that I am word for Lord here with everything that I have, and there's nothing in my life that has been worthy of that kind of trust in the past. And so I'm supposed to trust him with something that I don't trust anybody with, including my children or my wife. How in the world is that possible, God, for me to do that? 
And if it is possible, can you show me how? Can you lead me in the right way? I mean, I want to be changed by this. Then I'm stymied on the first word, trust. We continue. All your heart? All your heart? How about just part of my heart? How about just the part I'm, of my heart I'm not willing to, or that I'm willing to let get crushed? But the rest of my heart, I got to hold close to me because if you crush all of it, I got nowhere to go. I mean, I've been crushed before. I swore I'd never do that again. I built an island around myself, a wall, or that old Simon and Garfunkel song, I'm a rock. Remember that one, those of you my age? How do I do that? And how's it done, Lord? I mean, can you show me how? I know you trusted him. And when I asked my preacher about it, he just throws examples to me about Jesus trusted the Father. You know, you just have to trust the Father like Jesus. That's theory. Tell me how to do it. Well, you know, you just really just trust him really hard. That's theory. Can you show me how to do it? And if you can't show me, will the Holy Spirit show me? Answer is yes. And if the Holy Spirit will show me, how do I develop a relationship with me and with him that I know he's speaking when he speaks? And you know what? What areas of my life am I supposed to trust him? I don't mind trusting him with the parts that don't mean much to me, but what well, I'm supposed to trust him with my career. I'm supposed to trust him with my plans for the future. I'm supposed to trust him with, you know, my, my future spouse or, or trust him with how my kids are. Or, I mean, am I supposed to trust him with everything? Like my money and my children and my health and, and no, no, I can trust him with stuff that I don't care about, but you're asking for all. And if I give you all, what do I get? Oh, the promise that he will direct my paths. But Lord, I don't know how to trust you if I have a problem hearing from you. And if I do have a problem hearing from you, I mean, that needs to be handled first. And the more you trust, the more you hear, it's, uh, it's that spiraling upward thing. All right, so Lord, if, if I'm to trust you with all my heart, knowing that you will direct my paths. Here's the narcissistic part in us. Where do I fit into the equation? I mean, come on, God gave me a mind. He expects me to use it. Remember that Bible verse? Didn't think so. You know, so I'm supposed to surrender myself as a slave, like a slave to Jesus so that he provides my food and he takes care of all my needs and I just live to do his bidding. I mean, he wants to be a slave. Well, in a human connotation, nobody. You know who wanted to be a bond slave of Jesus? Paul and everybody else who has an over-the-top life with Christ. That's what he called himself. In your Bibles, when you read Paul, you know, an apostle of Christ and servant of Jesus Christ, that word is doulos. It's a voluntary bond slave where you don't have to worry about nothing but serving him. Seek him first and his righteousness and his kingdom because the master takes care of it all. Where do I fit in? I mean, don't I have any choice? Can I do anything? If I trust him with all that I am, I mean, what part do I play in my everyday life? God's going to make me do things I don't want to do. What a perverted view of God we have. The only way God's going to make you do things you don't want to do is that the things you want to do are fleshly and carnal and lead to death. Okay. I need to know how it's done. I need to know how this happens and, and what's going to happen. I mean, I mean, really, you're asking me to trust you more than I trust myself. Think that through. You're asking me to trust you with all my heart, with everything I am. So you're asking me to trust you more than I trust myself. And if you want to flesh that out, and we'll close here. If you want to flesh that out, you're asking me to trust you more than my reasoning or my logic my understanding of things. You're asking me to trust you more than what I learned in school, my education, the wisdom that I have from just all the years that I've lived, my, my feelings or my sincerely held convictions or my insecurity. You know what? I know what works for me and I know what doesn't work for me and I know what works out there in the world and I know what doesn't wor want to work out there. So Lord, you really should trust me when it comes to doing those kind of things and you want me to trust you. You, you don't know what I've been through. Oh, wait, wait. I remember that passage that says Jesus was tempted in all ways, even greater than I am, and yet persevered. So you do know what I'm going through, and yet you're asking me to close my eyes 
and to step out in the dark, just trusting you. Yeah. Well, I have a question and then I would like you, Lord, to give me an answer and then we'll stop for today. Here's the question, Lord. Uh, who can ever trust anything like that? I mean, what human being can ever trust anybody as much as this passage? We haven't even looked at the word yet. This passage is telling me I need to trust you. Can you give me an example, Lord? Can you show me any entity that you've created that trust this much? And his response is simply this. Yeah, a little child, a baby. A baby trust explicitly. I mean, that's why I think God made human children dependent longer than almost any other of his creation. I look at, um, I look at Stonewall, and Stonewall's now, what, uh, 10 days old, 11 days old, something like that. And, you know, Stonewall's just this eating and pooping machine. But everything about Stonewall is dependent on somebody else. If Stonewall was ignored for several hours, I mean, it would really be really bad. And, and he can't fend for himself. He can't, he can't even move his hands and fingers. He can't wipe something out of his eyes. He can't feed himself. He won't be able to feed himself for a long period of time. And so, Lord, you've given us this little baby, us, when we were first born, and you've placed us into the hands of people who may not have been as trustworthy as you probably weren't to take care of every one of our needs. And they did. We're still here. And then you said that the people who come to you must come to you like little children. Do you remember that? Little children. That doesn't mean they're stupid or dumb or can't swallow their own food. Little children means that they're coming to you with abject trust and that you will take care of their needs. We haven't even looked at the verse yet. We're just asking questions about what we read on the surface before we even understand what the word all and trust and Lord, especially this name of God, Lord, means to trust him. And already it moves us. Already it's like, wow, I had no idea that these are the requirements, the if passages, in order to receive the blessing. So let me just close with this and tell you that every promise in God is available to you, every one of them. Sometimes it doesn't require much on your part. Salvation simply means that you have enough faith to place it in Christ, that you believe that he died on the cross uh, for your sins, that he's the son of God, you ask his forgiveness, he comes into your life, and you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to understand propitiation or even understand how to spell it in order to get saved. Sometimes there's not much involved in that because God does most of the work. But when his Holy Spirit comes to live within you, he's equipped you to do anything, everything, powerfully. And so there's no excuse that we have for not being all he's called us to be because he himself lives in us. So the sanctification part of the Christian life, growing closer to him, sometimes seems difficult. Simple passage of trust in the Lord with all your heart, Okay, uh, lean on your own understanding. I never do that. Um, and all your ways acknowledge him. Okay, God, thank you for my this day and everything you've given me. And I just love you, Jesus. And he will direct my path. Doesn't exactly work that way. But if you would like to have the kind of life where God directs your path, you're right in the center of his life, that you have this spiritual fruit hanging for you that's so great that your branches are just bowed down, that promise is for you. It just takes a surrender to him to be able to let these truths be manifest in your life. So by Wednesday, I'm going to send you out a recording, uh, the second half of this message. I'll have a power, this PowerPoint attached to it to allow you to be able to see exactly what these passages mean. And we're going to just deal with a couple issues. We're not going to deal with trusting God with finances or trusting God with raising your kids or trusting God with you know, the future or stuff of that nature. We're just going to pick something really simple that all of us probably struggle with to one degree or another, and that's simply insecurity. It's simply not measuring up, feeling bad about yourself or bad about being a loser or think you're a loser or something of that nature. We're just going to deal with that issue and see if God can't show us 
through this passage how to be able to move beyond our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our insecurity, our us all being about us, because uh, we could spend a lifetime looking at all the issues we deal with. Amen? All right, I'm going to have this posted by Tuesday. Um, Wednesday, this message, if you want to listen to it again, posted by Tuesday. The new one will come out on Wednesday, and uh, um, I hope it will prove to be a blessing to you as we move towards Christ-likeness. Let me pray.